The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter Seventeen, in which Astrea and Lindy journey to the sea. The shadows were lengthening towards evening when Astrea became conscious of anything other than putting one foot in front of the other. For the entire day, he had been walking beside Lindy, carrying his share of their meagre belongings. In the moments when he was able to feel for other people, he wished that there was something he could do or say to alleviate Lindy's grief. Although they had both been able to deal with each successive moment since Gar's death, in her eyes was a desolation unlike her usual calm. She walked unaware and uncaring for where they might be going. Astrea could barely remember what had happened during the rest of the night after Gar's death. Somehow they made the arrangements that had put them on their way south, as Gar had directed. Now, as Astrea plodded along, he could only remember snatches of events. The sad procession back to the widow Amy's house, the way the good woman helped them with Gar's furtive, candle-lit burial in the woods behind her home, the preparations for their journey, and their eventual departure in darkness. She had outfitted them with food and such homely necessities as extra socks, and then sent them on their way with a serenity that amazed them all. Perhaps the same superstitions that made her ordinary life a mass of small worries gave her strength at the time of crisis. Astrea envied her. He stumbled to one knee, and long grasses swished at his face. He recovered, stood up, and looked about him as if newly wakened. They were pushing their way through scrubby trees, out onto a knoll of weathered grey rock, patched with shin-high juniper bushes. They had left the road at daylight, when it started to curve to the west, and had struck out to the south, using Astrea's new-found ability to control his bracelet. They had seen blackened skeletons of dead trees, remnants of some long-past forest fire, standing like sentinels in the undulating landscape, and they had waded through knee-high growth, the sun-warmed plants giving off puffs of their characteristic scents, the rank smell of aspen and the harsh, ferny odour of bracken. Astrea breathed deeply, smelling the tang of juniper. To his right the sun was declining in the west, and from the reddened cloud banks along the horizon white mare's tails curled upwards and outwards towards the deepening blue of the sky. Astrea's feet and legs refused to walk further. He stood amid the bushes with his eyes and mind receptive only to the sky above and the landscape around him. In the distance he could see low hills, soft with trees. Closer were clumps of woodland, such as they had been avoiding since they left the road. "'I'd need an almost dry brush to streak in the high clouds,' he murmured to himself. "'Then a faint pink wash, deepening into red towards the sun. "'Do the trees with a brush dipped in several shades of green. "'Squash the tip of the brush down and then twist to swirl the colours together. "'Sketch in the tree skeletons with charcoal on top of the paint, and then ink them in later.' leave the sun just outside the composition, and Lindy almost walked into him. "'Are you all right, Estrella?' she asked. Estrella nodded slowly. "'I think so, but I'm not sure.' 
Have I seemed strange to you in the last little while? Lindy shook her head, her blue eyes on his. You haven't said much since we got on our way. But you planned what we had to do. Kept me from getting too upset. Spoke kindly to the widow Amy. And gave Damon the leave he needed to stay behind. I couldn't have done it without you. None of us could. Astraea shook his head. But you're the practical one, not me. Not this time. You did all the thinking for us. You sent Damon back to the tavern, with money to pay Robert to say he'd been drinking there all night, and you got him to send Sandy and Knock northwards to confuse anyone trying to follow us. You stopped the widow Amy in time before she got too emotional, and persuaded her to keep the cart and Nora. You shared out Gar's secret store of coins after I got them from the wagon, and persuaded the widow Amy to take some of them. Then you got us on our way down the road at first, and later across country. After that, you kind of withdrew. Since then you've been walking, checking your bracelet from time to time, and walking some more. Whenever I asked you if you were all right, you just nodded. What about you, Lindy? Numb. I can't think about him. I can't. My mind slips off. I expect him to be around the next bend, waiting for us. They stared at each other as the red sunset dimmed above them, sharing their sorrow. I never knew my father, said Lindy, like you. But Gar was like... Her voice tailed off, and Astraea nodded, unable to speak. She had expressed his own thought, and there was no more to say. He looked around him. We should make camp for the night. It looks as if there's water down in the dell, and we can make a fire against one of the rocks over there. By the last light of the sun they wearily trudged over a shoulder of rock patched with moss. In the dell beyond were wildflowers of late summer and tall grass going to seed. A couple of paces down slope an old and twisted pine rose to barely twice a man's height. The tree had survived the fire that had transformed the landscape through which they had been walking for most of the day. Strong lower branches spread out from the trunk, forming a shelter. Above, the branches ended abruptly, leaving a burned and broken stick pointing at the sky. Below was a hollow, soft with generations of pine needles, in which they could spend the night. Astraea fetched a pan of water and some charred pieces of wood, with which he lit a small fire in the lee of a boulder. Lindy produced bread, smoked ham, and apples given them by the widow Amy, which Astraea had been carrying in his pack. They washed down their supper with herbal tea made from the widow's stock of dried leaves and flowers. The food gradually replenished their bodies and spirits, and as the hollow flickered in and out of sight by the light of the campfire, they began to talk softly. "'Gar tried to tell us something important,' said Astraea, "'but it came out as nonsense about ducks and sieves.' Then he started to make sense. "'But I can't get my head around what he said about my being Astraea's son. "'Why would he waste time telling me what I knew? "'Especially when he said there was so much he should have told me earlier.' "'Lindy did not seem to hear him. "'She started to speak slowly, almost to herself. "'I first met Gar only a few weeks after I left Mattress, my home. "'I was in a little community where I'd gone to work for a farmer.' 
Mostly that meant cows. Milk em, clean em, muck out the barn, fork down the feed. Did I say it was winter? Anyway, Gar turned up in my farmer's yard and offered to paint things and people. I thought he was wonderful. You remember he once said that there was a farmer who wanted him to paint a cow that had died a year earlier? Estrella nodded. My farmer. Anyway, Gar started painting the cow that wasn't there. I just had to watch him, and Gar couldn't resist drawing my farmer alongside the cow, looking even more stupid than he actually was. When the farmer's wife laughed, the farmer decided that Gar was in league with the devil, and off he went to get help from his neighbors. They were an awful, argumentative lot, who had little in common except for their fear of strangers and belief in the powers of darkness. They decided to kill Gar and steal the cart and Nora the horse. I overheard their plan being hatched, and before my farmer could get enough of them sufficiently stirred up, I snuck out to Gar's wagon and told him, "'Was that where you did your first moonlight flit together?' Lindy nodded. "'Yes, but in this case we had to apply some physical persuasion first. "'Your stick, and Gar's club, and Gar's smokes. "'I'm sorry you never saw them. "'He had some earthenware pots filled with something he had cooked up, "'which made enormous quantities of choking smoke, "'convincing the good people he really was a devil.' Lindy nodded again. Slowly the haunted look left her face and she smiled, at the same time as tears ran down her cheeks, glinting in the firelight. He was such a good man, Estrella. Estrella nodded bitterly. Gar's dead and it's because of me. If I hadn't left my jacket, then Carl wouldn't have come after me, and Estrella, he chose to go back. He wanted to help you. The whole business of getting back into the hall convinced him he had to open up to you, and he did. He showed you how to use your bracelet. Why didn't he do so earlier? I don't know. But when he was dying, he said something about fearing that you had been sent to take him back. Back where? Back to the men of the sea, Estrella. Back to your people. Or at least your father's people. What do you mean? My people? Something Gar told me on the road to the castle. When I asked him if he knew what your bracelet was, he said that only men of the sea had them. That was after you told him you'd got it from your father. He told me he was going to talk to you, but then we were attacked, and he wasn't sure if Eva was behind it. And because Gar thought you were sweet on her, he didn't want to speak out then, and then, well, he said it himself. You two were having too much fun. Sweet on Eva? Well, you did give her a bag of money. Do you think that— Not any more, Estrella. And only a little at first. She sure wasn't interested in me. She started up with Damon the moment she got to the castle. Yes, but the point is that Gar didn't trust Eva. He knew she faked the swing she took at the man who attacked her, because if it really had connected, we'd have been digging his grave. Why didn't he talk to me about it? First, he wasn't absolutely sure, not enough to accuse her. And because she ended up with the money, he was wondering what would happen next. So you both just let things happen? I don't understand why you didn't tell me. 
Estrella threw a stick onto the fire, and a small plume of sparks coiled up. Once again the metal of his bracelet tingled against his flesh, and his fingers closed on the silvery band under his shirt. "'I need to think,' he said, and stood up. "'I'll be up there on the rock.' He pushed his way through crackling bracken to the crest of the hill, and stood silhouetted against the sky. He stared into the deep wells of darkness among the stars, feeling the hollowness left by Gar's death. After a few moments he sat down and looked out to the south, where his bracelet pointed. A cool night wind made him grateful for the cloak given him by the widow Amy. Estrella shuddered, but not from cold. He had experienced the sudden ending of lives in the village, but always it had happened to someone who was not close to him, and usually because of the implacable sea. He had observed grief, and even though he thought he understood it, now the loss was his own, he discovered that with the emptiness came resentment. "'There's so much he could have told me,' said Estrella, unaware that he had spoken out loud. "'He should have—' "'He should be alive,' said Lindy. "'But he isn't. "'So now you have to think of what he did show you, "'all of it, including the funny parts, "'and how he let you decide things for yourself. "'He didn't try to make people do or be anything they didn't want to. "'He made me into a painter. "'You already were. "'He just helped you get better.' "'Estrella looked down at Lindy,' who was standing in the hollow below him, her head level with his knee. Starshine washed over them, gleaming on her skin. He reached out his hand, and she took it to climb up beside him. They sat in silence. "'You have been the cause of a lot of changes in my life, Estrella,' said Lindy at last. "'I've taken you away from what you had with Gar. I'm responsible for what happened to him.' "'No.' or at least not so you should feel any guilt about it. What I meant was, you've made my plans change. I don't have them any more. Gar started me doubting, but you made the real change. I told you, before Gar— She paused, sniffed, and hurried on. That I had to leave Mattress. I thought I'd do what was expected of me, and that would be that. Find a husband. At least bring back a baby so I'd really be a part of Mattress, as my mother was. But now I don't want that any more. I can't believe they just told you to go and get pregnant. That's not how it happened. If I'd married any of the men of my age in Mattress, our children would have probably been deformed or not right in their heads. The village is too small. And it needs what they call new blood. Unless, of course, I just gave up— and grew old and silly the way my aunt did. And there were other reasons my going away was necessary. People I... people I offended. But that didn't make it any easier. Estrella wanted to ask her to say more about the other reasons, but fearing she would simply fall silent, he asked a more neutral question. You weren't the first, were you? Lindy shook her head. Did the others come back? Some of them. That's why my uncle trained me to use my staff. Were they happy? The ones who came back? They were changed. They didn't talk about it. Only two brought their men back, but it didn't work out. 
They both left after only a year. They said they couldn't have their lives run for them by women, but that was an excuse. Besides, it's silly, because some of the mothers, the elders, I mean, are men. Most of them are women. Of course, there just aren't that many men. Estrella pondered the idea of a village where women were leaders. It seemed to him strange, but not impossible. Lindy brought him back to the present with a jolt. Estrella, what do you hope to find in the South? I really don't know. I suppose I'm just doing what Gar told me. Maybe I can find out what my father's book is about. Perhaps— He rolled back his sleeve, and the green stone in his bracelet pulsed as if it were alive. The spear of white light at its center pointed steadily in the same direction as he swung his arm this way and that. Then he held his arm still, and as they both watched, the spear changed its direction until it was aimed over their shoulders at the North Star. Estrella, did you do that? I—I I think so. But I don't know how. I asked it to point north, and it did. No, that's not quite right. Gar said it. Think north, he said. So I did. But it knew where north is. Why don't you try with the one Gar gave you? It's not lit up like yours. Let's see. Lindy rolled back her sleeve. Look, Lindy, it's glowing. It's just a gleam of starlight. Estrella brought his arm close to hers, and when the two bracelets almost touched, the light from Estrella's stone dimmed and then brightened as if a spark had jumped to the one on Lindy's arm, which began to shine almost as brightly as his. They both gasped, Lindy in delight. Estrella, as if he had taken a misstep down a dark staircase, he swayed, and Lindy took his arm. Her eyes gleamed in the doubled light from the two stones. Their arms side by side and their faces close, they looked at each other. Estrella saw wonder transform Lindy's face, and she saw excitement in his. You can do it too, Lindy. Think north, like Gar said. The spear of white light in her stone wavered. She glanced overhead to the pole-pointing stars, and the light in her stone swung around. Right, now close your eyes and swing your arm around. Lindy raised her arm until it was horizontal and waved it back and forth. It's working! You're doing it! Lindy opened her eyes and looked at her bracelet. It's swinging away again. It was as Lindy said. The spear of light was brighter and the green glow softer, so they had to look closely to see anything but the pointing sliver of white. I'm going to let mine go said Estrella. The spear swung to point a little east of south, just as Lindy's had done. On both their arms the green glow intensified once more, and then blinked. "'Did you do that?' asked Lindy. "'I don't think so. Just a moment. Let's do that again.' They concentrated, and the spear of light turned. They nodded at each other, relaxed, the pale centers swung back, both jewels blinked, and they both felt a tingle strong enough for them to let go of each other and reach for their gleaming stones. "'Don't touch it,' said Estrella. "'The stone burns—that is, it feels like burning, but it's not. I suppose that's why they're set in the metal cage.' They both stood looking at the gleaming stones and at each other. Lindy's lips flickered a question whether he was all right. Estrella nodded, and they were both reassured. "'The moment we're not thinking about it, the light dims and points over there, towards the sea,' he said. 
Then that's where you have to go, said Lindy. Guy said something about a ship, but that was when his speech was confused, said Estrella. And he said he'd expected to get back to sea just before he— Lindy's thought hung unfinished, while they both remembered Guy's last moments. He was—he certainly had been a sailor, said Estrella. Then we have a plan, said Lindy. At least we have a destination, and we're not just running away. Besides, even though it's not completely rational for me to say so, I have the feeling that there's something important that you have to do. People keep saying that to me, said Estrella. I never expected to hear it from you. There are times when I've felt the same way, but later it all runs away and I don't know what I should do. When I left the village with Roaring Jack, I thought I'd find out for sure. Then I got all wrapped up in painting with Gar, and there was so much more he could have told me. But instead we sketched and painted, and now he's dead. He'd want you to get the answers for yourself. Gar was like that. He didn't tell people things. He let them find out for themselves. It's a lonely way to learn, said Estrella. He could have told me something, just a few hints, maybe, and then I'd know what I had to do. If he had told you who you were, you'd never have believed him. And anyway, if someone tells you what you have to do and you believe them, then you're the prisoner of their words. Estrella turned to her and looked into her face by the starlight, struck by the force of what she had said. How do you see me, Lindy? he asked. You're a good person, Estrella. You could have killed Carl, but you didn't. You didn't run away, either. You're gentle, and maybe you think a little bit too much. But you do the right thing, even when it's difficult. Lindy paused so long that Estrella thought she was finished. Then she reached out a hand to touch his bare arm, her fingers dimly visible in the light of the green stones. You make me feel more alive, Estrella. The lights from the stones intensified again, and they pulsed in a regular rhythm. By their glow, Estrella and Lindy could see each other's faces clearly. Her eyes were open very wide, and her lips slightly parted. His eyes were almost black in the green light. They both moved at the same moment and their lips pressed together. They shared a sudden rush of pleasure that made them both draw back their heads at the same time to take a deep breath. Estrella leaned back against rock and drew her to him. Lindy moved to her head slightly, and Estrella kissed her face, her eyes, her neck, delighting in the faint scent of her hair and body, feeling that he had found a part of him for which he had long been searching. She chuckled deep in her throat. I hate to spoil the moment, Estrella, but this is not a good or dry or comfortable place. I'm wet, and I need a bath, and so do you. Estrella recoiled, embarrassed. She took his hand, pulled him closer, and kissed him gently. They climbed down the rocks without letting go, until Estrella started to wrap his damp cloak around himself and look about him in the firelight for a flat space to lie down. Hey! I didn't banish you forever, Estrella. And what's more, we'll be warmer if we put the wet side of your cloak down and the wet side of my cloak up and ourselves in between. They lay down in the cool night, drawing together between the cloaks. Estrella lay on his right side, wondering what to do with his left arm, on which his bracelet glowed dimly through his sleeve. Beside him, 
Lindy rolled over to face him, pulled back her sleeves so that her stone lit both their faces, and they shared a lingering kiss. They slept, woke, curled together and slept again. Later, neither could recall dreaming of anything. When false dawn ripened the sky to the deepest blue, Estrella woke and lay on one arm looking at Lindy. Bracken tickled her leg, and she moved under the cloaks between which they had slept. She turned towards him and nestled against his chest without waking. In sleep the calm that he had so often admired in her expression was now a peacefulness he envied. He curled one arm around her, and the position felt right, natural, as if he had known it before. Gradually the sky brightened, and the first rays of the sun lit the broken top of the tree under which they lay. Lindy stirred, opened her eyes, and smiled up at Estrella. He kissed her, and she chuckled as she sat up. She touched the side of Estrella's cheek with her fingers and wrinkled her nose. "'It's going to be a good day,' she said. "'I—' Estrella began. She put one finger on his lips. "'I'm going to wash,' she said. "'I'll bring back some water if you make up the fire.' Estrella blew up coals that still glowed in the grey ash, and soon had a crackling blaze. He stood close to the fire, warming his legs and looking over the rolling, tree-clad hills. They had camped just over the crest of the highest rise in their immediate region. Ahead of them, treetops poked out of morning mist like green reefs in a cloudy sea. The valleys were pools of grey vapour that curled upwards in tendrils. To the west, the rising sun warmed the wisps of cloud into the palest pink, Fold after fold of ground-hugging fog repeated its soft lines into the distance, where hills rose like waves, one behind the other. Smooth strokes with a watery brush of light pink, Estrella said to himself. Let the texture of the paper do the work. Just don't let the paint run down in drips. Do the near hills with greens in the same way. Smooth strokes. They have to be right the first time. No going back. Hint at mountains in the distance. Charcoal, smudged with a finger, leaving the line crisp at the top. Ask Gar if... His mind descended into grief as the landscape darkened, and his thoughts with it. As his shadow softened, blurred, and disappeared, Estrella looked east and saw the lower rim of the sun disappear into heavy clouds. Light brightened the distant mists for one last moment, and then the landscape darkened, to shades of grey. Lindy returned with a pan of water, her dress damp to the knees from the dew-wet bushes. She came to the fire that Estrella had coaxed into a blaze, and held her skirts out towards it to dry. It's not going to be pleasant walking today, but at least we know we can keep a straight line to the south. They ate a morning meal of dried fruit in silence, and packed up their belongings. Finally they poured the dregs of their tea over the fire and stamped out the embers. Estrella rolled a stone onto the ashes and broadcast the remains of their fuel. Satisfied that he had concealed where they had been, they set off southwards. They walked down the gentle slope from where they had camped, and in a few strides the mist closed over their heads. In a cold, damp world where bushes and plants blurred together only a few paces ahead of them, they were dependent on the green stones in their bracelets. Walking while checking the pointing shafts of light was too slow, so they took turns, 
choosing a tree or a rock as a landmark along the line indicated by the stones, then they walked to it, and then repeated the process. Sometimes the fog shifted, and they could go a fair distance without having to check direction, and sometimes they could walk only a few strides. Occasionally they were forced to ford streams overhung by maples and elms. Sometimes they had to make their way around swamps where cedars clumped together into impassable thickets. Every now and then they scrambled up a rocky outcrop, only to find at the crest that the other side fell away like a breaking wave, forcing them to angle westwards, away from their line of march. The green stones never failed to point their way, so that overall their line of progress was southerly. At first they were cold. The fog hovered around them and water dripped off every bush and tree. After a while they found themselves warmed by walking up steadily rising ground. Each time they stopped to check their bearings, they plunged on quickly, knowing that a long halt would chill them again. When it came time for the midday meal, they ate handfuls of nuts and dried fruit as they walked, and stopped only briefly at streams to quench their thirst. A silence lay between them that neither could break. Estrella's mind churned over three questions. Where were they going? What had Gar not told him? And most of all, what had almost happened last night? Each time he started to put together words on one of the three questions, the other two poured into his mind, leaving him in a confusion of feelings. One moment he knew a simple answer to the last. Lindy had sensibly stopped them. The next moment he wondered why. Was it that she rejected him? Or had she just put off the moment to some other time? Or was she looking for something more? Curiosity drove him forward, and loss was at his back. But having Lindy walking beside him tugged at his feelings in ways he had never imagined possible. Unlike Eva, the tavern girl, and the shepherd's daughter, being with Lindy simply felt right to him. In the afternoon, the strain on the backs of their legs told them they were gaining height, instead of merely going up and down, as they had done during the morning. The trees thinned to the occasional stunted pine, which they saw as a darker shape in the mist. The ground was stony under their feet. They glimpsed great shards of black rock on either side as the mist swirled around them. They wound their way upwards, obedient to their pointing bracelets. Astrea wondered whether they had reached the distant ridge he had glimpsed early that morning. When lichen-covered cliffs forced them to angle away from their direction, he grew increasingly concerned that they were becoming lost. Then, almost as if it were in response to his thought, he pushed his way through a thicket of knee-high juniper and found himself on a path. It was not one of the wandering game trails that they had crossed or briefly followed earlier in the day. The people who had made this path had wanted to get from one place to another by the shortest route. Estrella checked its direction with his bracelet, even though he knew it would lead them closer to their destination than any amount of rambling around the edges of the ridge on which they stood. Lindy had been a few paces behind him, her skirts caught in the branches. "'Couldn't we find a way that—' she began testily, and then grabbed Estrella's arm. "'Oh, well done, Estrella. You found a path.' "'Blind luck,' said Estrella but he set off up the path with a confidence he could not explain even to himself. Walking was much easier, even though they were now climbing steeply. Bushes and grasses no longer plucked at their ankles, 
and they did not have to duck under branches that sprayed them with droplets of clinging fog. The mist thinned as they climbed, and they felt both warmer and drier. The sun did not appear in the whiteness overhead, but they could feel its warmth. Their cloaks were no longer necessary to keep them warm, so they took off the heavy garments that had flapped wetly against their shins and tied them on top of their packs. Lindy started to hum to herself, and the little tune she repeated over and over seemed to make their steps lighter. Where the path was wide enough to allow it, they walked side by side, their strides matching. As the late afternoon waned, they came to a pass between two rocky hill-crests. The path steepened until it led up a series of irregular terraces with rough scrambles from one to the next. They had to use their hands as well as feet to climb over rock made slippery with damp yellow lichen. A stream that had flowed beside the path dwindled to an intermittent trickle that wound its way around boulders and rocks, eventually disappearing completely under tumbled stones, where, for several strides, they could hear it chuckling. Despite the increasingly rugged climb, they could see where rocks had been rolled away or laid flat, and they knew they were still on a path. A wind freshened at their backs, and the last vestiges of fog blew away. Low in the west, the sun sent out long fingers of light under a blue-black cloud-bank, much darker than the one they had seen at dawn. Tiredness made them stumble as they crossed a boulder-strewn, saddle-shaped pass between gaunt rock on either side. Suddenly they were looking out and down on a new landscape. The downward slope was completely different from the ridge they had climbed. Estrella's arm tingled, and when he glanced at Lindy he saw that she, too, had put her hand over her bracelet. He shrugged, and as the faint prickling sensation died away, they both smiled. Estrella stamped his feet. Instead of the cracked and jumbled grey stone they had climbed, a darker, harder rock was underfoot. He was reassured by the way his boots crackled on little gem-like crystals, as there were in the cliffs above his village. Lindy's hand sought Estrella's, and she squeezed his fingers. Shading his eyes against a sudden gleam of sun between the clouds, he looked forward. "'The sea, Estrella,' said Lindy. Far in the distance, white caps rolled shoreward, catching the level light. Closer below them, the sun glanced through clouds onto a nearly circular bay, surrounded by tidal flats that blended into fields that reached to the foot of the ridge on which they stood. When they looked left and right, they saw that they were on an escarpment that formed a rough circle broken where the bay met the sea by a gap between low headlands. Below them, beyond the fields at the water's edge, was a collection of houses. Boats dotted the water at their moorings, and Estrella could just see the outline of wharves. As they stood and watched, shapeless masses of dark cloud drove overhead, and blotted out what was left of the sunlight. The town and harbour dulled, turning to grey shapes near an indistinct shoreline, with a few dim lights glowing in the gloom. To their right, the main path took an easy route towards the town in a series of switchbacks. Ahead of them were scuff marks and scars on the rocks where walkers had taken a more direct route. "'We'll do well to get there before the storm hits,' said Lindy, glancing back at the sky behind them. "'Let's head straight down.' Astrea looked dubiously at the faint trail and shrugged. Cautiously, they began the descent towards the harbour.
You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.